This is a McKillop podcast. Welcome to Exploring Curiosity, Resiliency, and Hope, a podcast for times of challenge and transformation. We are excited for your presence as we learn, grow, and evolve from a multitude of voices and wisdom. This is a space for conversations and curiosity, finding ways to be resilient with all that is happening in our personal lives and the world, and maybe finding an embodied hope to live by. We join our host, Trevor, in conversation with Professor Loretta Coleman-Brown, who brings her amazing soul and experience to share with us. I think it was really the first time I thought I might die. I didn't actually think I was going to die before, but that was one of those times. And, and some of it, I think, had to do with the, the strong medication I was on that sort of makes you think that you're going to die or that you want to die because it's so difficult to deal with. Professor Brown retired as the ace I. Carden Distinguished Professor Emerita of Psychology at Agnes Scott College, Decatur, Georgia. She also taught and researched at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and the University of Colorado, Boulder. She currently serves as a spiritual companion and director, and a writer, retreat leader, and speaker as she promotes contemplative spirituality in everyday life as well as the life and work of Howard Thurman and uncovering the peace in one's heart. If she could select five other lives to live, they would include being a fashion designer, a jazz pianist, a conductor of an orchestra, a vegetable gardener, and a pastry chef. This is a three-part series with Professor Brown, and in part one, we hear about her journey of how she survived a heart transplant over 25 years ago by talking with and listening to her heart. This later became a book she wrote called When the Heart Speaks, Listen, Discovering Inner Wisdom. Welcome, uh, Professor Brown, to our, our first podcast of hope and resiliency, and thank you for uh, joining us on this journey. Thank you, I'm just delighted to be able to spend some time talking about my journey and about hope and resiliency because I think those are the probably the two best attributes to characterize it. So thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you for for being generous and 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 I'm excited about exploring uh, the wisdom that your hearts have shared uh, through your book, When the si- a Heart Speaks Silence, Discovering an Inner Wisdom, that was just published in 2019. And then also your devotion to Howard Thurman, who has really not come to light in our Christian heritage. And we'd have to ask if it's due to systemic racism in some ways. I don't know. How do you, f- what would you respond to that? Certainly, I think that's a part of it that I think he should be as famous as Thomas Merton. He certainly wrote more books, and I think he had a tremendous impact on American history, particularly with his uh, influence on the civil rights movement in the United States. And so some of it has to do with the fact that he was not someone who was uh, promoted. And at the same time, he was certainly not a person who promoted himself much. That was just not in his character. I also think that because of the courageous actions of Martin Luther King Jr., that he's just overshadowed. But for me, he was the spiritual architect of the civil rights movement in the United States. And it's unfortunate that 40, almost 40 years after he, he died, that he's gaining the recognition that he deserved all along. So, mm-hmm. so today we're, we're sort of zooming around or uh, flowing with spiritual identity and hope and resiliency and your, your life experience with that. Um, and then also the, the wisdom that's coming through uh, Howard Thurman to you around that too. So, so I'm curious, um, 
how how would you, people can't see you so what would you like them to know about you uh, as, initially as we begin this podcast well it's clear that I've had an extraordinary life and I don't think if I had been writing the script myself it would have turned out the way it has so uh, I, I am a grateful person uh, to still be alive after having two transplants and other multiple medical issues. And uh, I feel like I am the epitome of resilience. I've been on, on the mat several times. Uh, and I think deeply spiritual person. I'm, I'm most, I, most proud of that and of uh, answering the call to, uh, to help awaken other people to their own spiritual natures. Uh, I, I spent several years as a psychology professor, and I enjoyed that career, but I think I'm having much more fun now that I'm retired, uh, going out and leading retreats and spending time with people who are exploring their own spiritual journeys. So I, I do some of that in part as a spiritual director companion. So I, I have uh, people that I talk with on a regular basis, but I also have just met amazing people at retreats all over the country, uh, as well as now online as a result of the, the pandemic. So I, th I think if we were just to begin to describe me, th those would be the, the attributes I might use. When, when did you feel most hopeless in your life? And, and how did that change you? Well, I must admit that I was quite shocked when they told me that I was going to need a heart transplant. I had had open heart surgery in the middle of graduate school, believe it or not. Uh, and I thought I was done with that. I was like, okay, we're good. Uh, but uh, about you know, 15 years later, here I was uh, teaching at the University of Colorado in uh, Boulder, Colorado, and declining rapidly. Uh, I don't think I was aware at the time that my heart condition was actually a genetic disorder. And as uh, one acupuncturist that I visited told me, he said, Loretta, you're sitting on a genetic time bomb. And all I can do is prepare you for this path you're going to have to walk. I'm not going to be able to cure this condition. So just sitting with that was enormous. I also believe that I had a rejection episode about eight years after the transplant, and I was in the hospital for 27 days. And they were trying to save my heart. And they actually walked in one day and said, we think we're going to be able to save your heart, but we're going to have to kill your kidneys to do it. And so not only was I dealing with the, the medications that, I mean, very powerful medications that they were giving me to fight off this rejection. But I think it was really the first time I thought I might die. I didn't actually think I was going to die before, but that was one of those times. And, and some of it, I think, had to do with the, the strong medication I was on that sort of makes you think that you're going to die or that you want to die because it's so difficult to deal with. So spending time in the hospital for that long was really challenging. And uh, of course, I did later, about six months later, uh, go into renal failure and I was on dialysis for a year. And I also think that the time of dialysis was a pretty gray time for me, that uh, it, you're tired a lot, um, the diet is very restrictive, uh, and there are lots of people on dialysis uh, who are in varying stages of either 
maintaining or getting worse. And so it was real difficult to uh, see this cohort of people. I mean, you, basically, you, you get to know the people that you have dialysis with three times a week. Um, and, you know, to see some of them gradually, you know, decline. Um, so I think those were the times when I, I was, I was really asking like, why, you know, and, and why am I having to go through all of this suffering? I, I don't quite understand it. And so I would say that those were probably the times that I felt most hopeless. And Professor Brown, what, what kept you alive with everything that was happening during those, those hopeless times? What, what kept you going and have some sense of resiliency and not give up? Well, so I had a number of mystical experiences surrounding my heart transplant. And one of those was uh, I was having my own Garden of Gethsemane experience of, you know, why me, why me, why am I going through this? And there was this voice that came up inside of me that said, why not you? That maybe this is why you're here. And maybe this is why uh, you uh, are having this transplant. That maybe you're not here to be the next Sigmund Freud <laughs> or the some famous black psychologist or something. Maybe this is your part to play in the overall plan. So step up. And it was, I mean, I was sort of shocked to hear that, but it gave me uh, a purpose for uh, going through this. I, I think that there were many times when, for example, I was having uh, what they call biopsies, where they're checking your heart for um, rejection. And the process is fairly painful. And they, they send a catheter down your neck and into your heart and, you know, biopsy it. Uh, and there were, so there were times when I was just like thinking, oh, this is ridiculous. But I felt like if, if that suffering was going to help somebody, it's going to help wake up somebody, uh, that it was worth it. And so I think when I got out of myself and connected myself to a much larger process or plan, that's when I think the resiliency came back uh, or, 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 or came forth. And I found that having a regular spiritual practice, um, devoting my, my life more to spirituality than material, you know, acquiring material things, uh, gave me something, uh, fed me. Uh, and so even now when I feel like I'm getting weary from all the things that could be happening, I go to my quiet place and, you know, go back, go inside. And that is, I know that we're not, talking about Howard Thurman quite yet, but that was something that he did that I found I did, right? That when uh, you need to be rejuvenated or re revitali revitalized, uh, that those are the times when you need to, to go inside. Um, and that's basically what that, that quiet time with God is for, is, is, is renewing your spirit so you can go back out there and do whatever it is that you're being called to do next. It reminds me, and you, you already uh, talk about this and, and, uh, and know it, Howard Thurman talks about the sound of the genuine within yes. each of us and other people. And what I hear you saying is uh, through this uh, great suffering, somehow you listen to that sound of the genuine in you. Yes. I. I also remembered uh, attending a Richard Rohr lecture once where he said a lot of spiritual awakening occurs as a result of either great love or great suffering. And I just think I was the kind of person who needed a lot of suffering. 
to wake up because I was as as you as you know in my book when the heart speaks listen discovering inner wisdom I was very ego driven I you know I wanted to be famous and uh but that was all about me <laughs> it wasn't about anybody else so I began to listen more carefully to my own inner guidance and to the things that I resonated with, uh, the things that fed my spirit. I started paying attention to that. And I think in part, I was one of these people who was, who was born with the gift of discerning spirits. That is, I can pretty much sense what a person is like after talking to them for 15 or 20 minutes. And so I have not, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very good at knowing whether or not a person is actually telling me the truth or not. Um, and I also have found that it is so vital to listen to your own inner guidance as well as to find those things that have always fed your spirit and to do those on a regular basis. So, you know, I have a garden and uh, I like to sew. I love fabric. Um, and so, you know, making that space for some creativity, you know, whether it's in the kitchen, um, baking or reading. I love to read. And I think it's really important to incorporate those things in one's daily life. So, so as I continue to listen to the genuine in me, I can also hear it in other people. And I just, I, I wish that more people actually paid attention to that and could step out of whatever restrictions, whether they have to do with social class or race or gender, you know, just not let those things keep them from doing the things that give them joy. Hmm. And in, in your book, When the Heart Speaks Listens, you talk about uh, invitation to, to, I guess you could call it a spiritual practice or a psychological practice, where you are invited to do active imagination um, or a Jungian approach with, with your own heart. Can, can you talk about what, what happened when you did that and, and your experience? It's such a wonderful story. I was truly freaked out when they said, uh, this, this heart transplant is imminent. It's not like next year. It's like we're ready to do the workup because you need to be doing this sooner than later. And so my friends basically found this psychologist, his name was um, Ricardo Esparza, he lived in Boulder, and he, he worked with people with chronic health conditions. And so I went to him, and one of the first things he suggested was that, uh, I said, I'm not even sure if I want to have a heart transplant. I don't even know if I want to go through all of this. And he said, well, that's fine. He said, but I think you and your heart need to make that decision. And so I'm like, well, how's that going to happen? <laughs> so he said, well, I think you need to go home and talk to your heart. Now, of course, I had heard of active imagination, being that I am come from the field of psychology. It is a technique that Carl Jung uh, proposed many, many years ago to actually interact with dream figures, you know, sort of project them out and have a conversation with them, because he really felt that you could not only gain wisdom, but also clarity from this kind of activity. So in this case, um, my therapist was suggesting that I go home and have write out these conversations. And I thought it was just going to be a conversation like, okay, heart, like what's going on? And so are we going to have this transplant or what? Right. <laughs> but it actually didn't turn out to be like that. It turned out to be you know, a number of conversations with my old heart and a series of conversations with my new heart uh, as I maneuvered through this whole transplant experience. It was very difficult for me to 
let go of my heart. I mean, at first, when they were explaining it to me, I was just like thinking, this is surreal. I mean, like, so you're going to take my heart out and you're going to put somebody else's in that I don't even know. <laughs> and I'm supposed to walk around with this other person's heart. So, I, I mean, I understood it logically, but I think at that feeling level, I was like, oh, but I can't, how am I going to let go of my heart? This is my heart. I, you know, even though it's, we've struggled, you know, I don't want to let go of my heart. So my, my heart, uh, uh, through these conversations, helped me to get to the place where it was time to say goodbye um, and to prepare me for a new heart. Because, you know, there are lots of conversations about, you know, if you keep this behavior up, you're going to wear out the new heart <laughs> in no time. So let's see if we can make some, some uh, changes here. <laughs> As in a change of heart in, in all the yeah. ways that it, it means. <laughs> now, your, your, your heart, because you, you've had two now. Yes. <laughs> um, both had their own names. Yes. And yeah, could you share the, the names that they told you? And then w the, what wisdom did each one bring that um, has shaped your identity and, and who you are today? So I, I had a lot of difficulty with actually even wanting to publish this manuscript because my old heart's name was Heavy Harvey. And... That just seemed a little strange uh, because I'm like, how can my heart be male? You know, and I'm female. And so we, my heart actually reveals itself in a conversation where I basically say, oh, you're pretty deep, aren't you? And he says, well, they don't call me heavy Harvey for nothing. And I'm like, what? You have a name. And my heart's like, you have a name. So we have this little conversation about, why he's named Heavy Harvey. And I said, well, how can I have a male heart? And he said, in the world of hearts, there are no such thing as gender, race, social class. And I'm like, so what does that mean? He says, look, I have a masculine tone. <laughs> so don't worry, don't get stuck in these categories. And I think in part, my heart had a masculine tone because I was basically working among very competitive men in the psychology departments for you know, the last 15, 20 years, so at, at least at the time. And so that became my persona in some ways, tough, you know, competitive kind of, kind of person. Uh, I think the greatest, I mean, Heavy Harvey just had so much wisdom and it's, you know, you kind of had to read the book to get it all. but. Uh, towards the end, he tells me that there are four things that I need to master to get through the transplant and the rest of my life. And that is to listen, to trust the guidance that I'm receiving, to cultivate an enormous amount of patience, <laughs> and to surrender. And if I can master you know, those four steps, that I would be fine. And I think that's a gift to everyone that I think we all um, have like an internal GPS, um, you know, our own guidance system, and it tries to talk to us all the time, but we don't listen. Uh, so listening, listening to that inner guidance, uh, trusting that, um, having patience, because typically we want things to happen just right away. Right. <laughs> and they don't always because I think they're linked to a, a bigger plan. And so if we can surrender and not think that we always know what's best for ourselves or anybody else, uh, it, it really creates a different kind of life for us. My new heart, Grace, and I have to say, we went through a, a variety of different names. <laughs> and part of it had to do with the fact that it really wasn't until about a year or so before I published this manuscript that I was able to make contact with my donor's family. I had sent notes, but uh, in the sort of 20 years that, it, that uh, 
occurred in between. Um, she had lost her father and a younger brother, and she had one remaining brother. And so he was very curious, and I, I did finally get a chance to meet him. Uh, and he gave me permission to tell her real story. Um, I had kind of created a story because I really didn't know the, well, I knew part of the story, but I, I wasn't going to do that without permission from the family. So actually, uh, my, my heart, Grace, uh, and the name of my donor and her two friends are all real. The rest of the names I kind of made up, pseudonyms. But Grace, I think, reminds me that our hearts, we have hearts to remind us to love. That's really their purpose. Now, they hold a lot of emotions for us, and we can weigh them down. But that their primary purpose is to remind us that it's really about love. It's all about love. Everything's about love. So, and of course, just I, I think about the grace I've been given. I mean, we're talking about 25 years, um, and that's obviously very rare uh, for a transplant recipient. Mm -hmm. Well, I, one of the lines in your book, and I don't know why it stood out, but it did for me, was one something that Grace said. And I think it's for me, it stood out because of as we're talking about a spiritual identity. She, she said to you quite bluntly near the end, not everything is about you. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> and and, the, and you were having the conversation of how how do you initiate a spiritual awakening? And that's so fascinating. We don't talk about that much. Our society sort of is, everything is about me if you look on social media and it, it's not really about awakening, but your heart, your heart and the deeper spirit, we're really inviting that to you. And how, how did you approach that? Like, like how do you initiate a spiritual awakening or can you? Well, I think spiritual awakenings come in a variety of ways. I mean, much of mine came from suffering, uh, but you know, you can go out and see a beautiful sunset and it can awaken something in you. So I'm not quite sure if you can initiate them. I think they come as a result of your deciding that you want to pursue your spiritual life um, and that it might take precedent over your desire to add to your material possessions or to build your reputation or career. All of those are ego things, right? So I think at some point, and sometimes it occurs naturally as people get older, they realize that it's not, it's not out there and, it's, and your peace and joy are not in these things, these material things, um, or in other people, but they can be awakened in you. Um, by engaging in spiritual practices like silence, sitting in silence, um, or, or taking time for solitude, um, or engaging in inspirational reading on a regular basis. But I do believe that part of what happens is that as you awaken, you realize that you're connected to something much bigger than you and that it can't be about you that it's, it's, you know, the more you stay in that ego state, the more, more you suffer. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the big aha for me, which is why I had to hit the mat several times because I was so ego-driven. It was so embedded in my self-concept. You know, it's like, what's the next goal and what are we going to do? That, you know, I mean, I think we even, I talk in that first conversation about wanting to win the Nobel Prize that they don't give in psychology. So I had a long way to come <laughs> to get to the place where I realized that I was here for a purpose and that I needed to be open to what that was, to, to be willing to have it revealed to me and to start engaging in those activities that I was being called to. Um, and so now... My life is not about me. <laughs> my, 
my life is really about encouraging other people to follow their own spiritual journeys and paths because I think in the end what people need to understand is that it is all about spirit that we're spiritual beings even though we think of ourselves as bodies all the time but as I try to gently remind people as Grace and I did in the conversation bodies never leave the earth they're formed here, and they're left here. So if we are anything, it's not a body. And I think that uh, just recognizing that is a little scary, but I think it's really the beginning to understanding that it's really a, it's really important to cultivate a spiritual identity. I think everybody has one. I think we're born with that capacity and research suggests that. Uh, but oftentimes it gets schooled out of us, you know, mm -hmm. as we start to move out into the social world and we forget that we're really spiritual beings. And how did um, your journey with your heart and uh, then tie in with Howard Thurman and Howard Thurman had his own hardships. How'd that all tie together and what, what's Howard Thurman taught you about and inspired you? Well, what's fascinating is that I ran across Howard Thurman uh, much later in life. I, I was finishing up a, a spiritual direction program at the Shalane Institute and looking for a final project. And <clears throat> I was wondering if in the history of the world there were any African or African-American mystics. <laughs> and I had I had not ever heard of him. But I, I think that when I discovered him, I saw the, the similarities, even though we're about 50 plus years apart. Um, we had some common experiences. I certainly was drawn to, to the outside, to going out and sitting in the wind as a, a young child. And I felt because I found it so peaceful and, and serene. And he also spent a lot of time outside as a, a child and had these amazing, you know, mystical experiences where he would feel like he was the 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 sun and the trees and the ocean, you know, that like God was breathing uh, uh, through one lung in him. And so that was important. And I, I want to just read a quote from uh, his uh, autobiography with head and heart, <laughs> which I think sometimes we are leading either to one or the other. But, you know, he had that nice balance. And he says, um, I was a very sensitive child who suffered much from the violences of racial conflict. The climate of our town, Daytona Beach, Florida, was better than most southern towns because of the influence of the tourists who wintered there. Nevertheless, life became more and more suffocating because of the fear of being brutalized, beaten, or otherwise outraged. In my effort to keep this fear from corroding my life, and making me seek relief in shiftlessness, I sought help from God. I found that the more I turned to prayer, to what I discovered in later years to be meditation, the more time I spent alone in the woods or on the beach, the freer became my own spirit, and the more realistic became my ambitions to get an education. So Howard Thurman's response to the horrible brutality that was uh, part of um, living during sort of the Jim Crow era of the United States was to turn inside to God. Here you have this young black boy meditating in the early 1900s. I mean, it's just you know, like you're like thinking, what, really? And it's so amazing. that was one of the first things that I got excited about. I was like, oh, so I'm not weird. <laughs> <laughs> there are other people, other black people who, you know, found meditation to be a source 
of solace and connection. And so, uh, so that was one thing. I think the other thing was that uh, his grandmother, who had been a slave, would tell him and his, his sisters the same story over and over again about uh, once a year they allowed a slave preacher to come and uh, talk to the slaves on the plantation, and he would you know, do a sermon, and at the end... He would look at each one of them and he would say to them, now remember, you're not slaves. You're not the N-word. You are holy children of God. And she would tell this story to Howard Thurman and his sisters whenever she saw them losing confidence or feeling bad because of their realization that they were second-class citizens um, growing up in this time period. And he said it always uplifted their spirits. And so the similarity for me was that I went to Catholic school and the nuns would tell us all the time, you know, you're holy children of God. And so you need to, you know, act and talk accordingly. And so for it gave me a sense of confidence. Uh, and, you know, I felt like I was smart and special and I could just do anything I wanted to do because I was a holy child of God. So, so, but in both cases, what it was doing was it was unveiling, well, it was unveiling a spiritual identity that I think we all have, but I, but I think needs to be cultivated and developed just like any other identity. Or just like if you were, had a musical identity and you played the violin, well, you can be a, a violin virtuoso, so, you know, sort of born prodigy, but if you don't practice, right, it's not right. going to get better. Yeah, so yeah. in the case of spiritual identity, I think you have to start to do those kinds of or engage in those kinds of spiritual practices that will develop it. So in the case of, um, in my case, of course, going to Catholic school, we did a lot of praying <laughs> all the time. <laughs> and um, and, I, and I, I really appreciate my parents for sending me and my siblings to Catholic school because it oriented us to God. So, I mean, that's sort of the first thing that you do. When you need something, you go to God. God's the source, not this person out here, but God. Mm -hmm. And Howard Thurman discovered that too, which is God's the source. And if you live a life rooted in God, and that's where you go when you need something, then you don't really have to worry about what these other people out there are trying to do to keep you or limit you from what you need to do. And I think that's how he got out of his circumstances. And so then for you, uh, Professor Brown and Howard Thurman, uh, what is the experience like when you live uh, from this spiritual identity, this calling, you are a child of God? Well, what does it feel like or uh, smell like or taste like or um, to, 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 to follow that spiritual identity? Well, I certainly think that there are times in life when it's more prominent than others. In other words, there have been periods of, of in my life when I kind of let the spiritual practices lapse. And I think that's when you fall back into the ego life, you know, and you're working hard and suffering in some ways. Uh, and you forget that, you know, your source is right there. You, it sort of kind of reminds me of the... Uh, the Wizard of Oz, you know, you've got the red slippers on, but you forget, right? And so you had to get out there and do the Oz experience. <laughs> but once you go back, it, you know, you're reminded again that this is really, this is the, where the nourishment is. Um, and I found that as long as I realized or was aware of that I was 
always connected to God, that 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 bond has not ever been broken. I may have thought it was, but it's never been broken. That it gives you, as as Thurman would say, a sense of freedom. Um, it, and it gives you some deep peace. And I think that's then where the joy emanates from. It's like you're just, you know, that peace that passes understanding. Mm-hmm. It's like whenever you're in one of those states, there's, there's, there's this gratitude and joy that just comes with it because it's like, oh, this is wonderful. So, uh, but, you know, what we live one day at a time and some days, like I said, it's very prominent and other days, you know, you're out there trying to figure out what's going to happen next, et cetera. So, but I, I think that because I have uh, been more devoted to my practice, uh, the more devoted that I am to my practice, the more that I can stay with it. And I can, I can, I can awaken with joy. Um, a lot of times I will ask myself sometimes in the morning, Am I feeling peace and joy? And if not, what's in the way? Mm. What am I thinking that I probably shouldn't be thinking? What have I not asked for? Do I need to go inside and spend even a longer amount of time? Uh, What's in the way? And uh, so Thurman has really confirmed and affirmed my ideas about having a spiritual identity. I think we all have one. It just doesn't get developed in a lot of people. And with our spiritual identity, is it something that you can hang on to? Is it something static? Or is it more than that? Well, I want to describe it like this. When babies arrive, they don't know anything about who they are. And so through the process of interactions with family and with the world, they begin to construct, or it gets constructed for them, a self-concept. So all the things that you know about yourself in terms of any ethnic or racial identity, gender, all of that stuff, is basically given to you. And I often wonder, uh, because, you know, we sometimes will talk about this idea of false and true self. I often wonder if, in fact, we come with this spiritual identity or spiritual self, and it just gets covered up. And because I've I've had uh, people tell me such wonderful stories about young children who are very spiritual. Um, Recently, one of my friends uh, told me about her granddaughter who uh, came down to breakfast one morning and said to her mother, you know, I chose you and I was expecting more when I came down from heaven. (laughs) (laughs) This is like a four or five year old. And that's not the first time that... I've heard the story about I chose you, right? So I think we arrive as spiritual beings that we are, and then we go through the process of getting this other self. Well, you know, Carl Jung would say that the first 35 years of our lives, we construct a a self, and the next 35 years, we're deconstructing it, right? And so we're just gradually uncovering, you know, the layers. And I think that's why when you find more people over the age of 40 or 50 at spiritual retreats and conferences and more interested in spirituality because you still have these young people who are constructing a self and thinking that's who they are. And it takes some time and some wisdom to understand that that that's what somebody gave to you or that you decided that you were going to believe, but that may not be who you are. It's such a journey, isn't it? Oh, yes. It is. It is a journey. And I and for me, I found um, Howard Thurman to be like a way station, you know, a place where you stop and rest in um, and just absorb as much of the deep wisdom that 
he exemplified in his life and in his writings. Um, and uh, so that you can continue on the dest, uh, you know, on the on the uh, journey towards your destination, because it's not just um, it's not just finding a spiritual teacher and that's it. I mean, as a professor, I used to tell my students an A paper, it goes beyond the, the information given. So, you know, where can we take Howard Thurman's wisdom to the next level? Or in, in this case, you know, to spread to other people so that they are beginning to awaken themselves. And, it, and, 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 it, and I think it also takes us beyond this idea of it's not just me. It's not just about me. Um, that the more that uh, he would he would argue that the more that more the more encounters with God that you have, the more you feel the need to step out of yourself and answer your call for what are you going to do to uh, contribute to God's plan for restoring the beloved creation. Mm -hmm. As you're talking, it, it reminds me of one of my favorite Howard Thurman's uh, texts that I have to keep coming back to <laughs> more than some of the, the others, um, and I hope to read more too, is that uh, he talks about, you know, what is your name? Who are you? And can you find a way to hear the sound of the genuine in yourself? There are so many noises going on inside of you, so many echoes of all sorts, so many internalizations of the rumble, the traffic, the confusion, the disorders by which your environment is peopled. And I wonder if you can get still enough. You know, he's also got a couple of other meditations, uh, one called um, How Good to Center Down, which is in his Meditations of the Heart, where he basically says, you know, our, our mind seethes with endless traffic. Um, and it's so important to take a pause sometime in the daytime. Um, he's got another one called the a lull in doing, right? To just stop all the doing and be quiet for a few minutes because it's so important to uh, feeling alive, right? You know, he's got that famous quote about, you know, uh, don't go out there and, and uh, uh, ask the world uh, what it means, go out there and do something that makes you come alive because what the world needs are people who have come alive. And so I, I believe, and I think he also believed that it is in this renewal of spirit that that's how we remain alive. And it's so wonderful that, that you have been um, courageous enough to share the vulnerability of your journey and expose yourself in your book, <laughs> uh, you know, when the heart speaks, listen, because, you know, there's some there's some really heavy hearted stuff in there, <laughs> which you're truthful about. And as a and, you know, Howard Thurman, too. And I, I'm looking forward to our, our next episode in which um, we can sort of dive a little deeper of how how do we listen um, to our hearts? Uh, how do we, you know, as you talked about silence and practice? I'm curious, as we come to the end of this session, do you still, uh, every once in a while, talk with grace, your heart? Uh, and if so, maybe not in the conversations like you did in the book, but what, what would she say to you right now and right here today in this moment? So I rarely have a conversation with grace because as she says at the end, this talking business is too weird. <laughs> that this is not natural. That hearts are communicating all the time. We don't need to be talking. But I, I do listen to her. Uh, she is still very much a part of my life. And I think what she would say is, you know, just exhale. Right? <laughs> um, just take it one day at a time, and uh, the spirit, as as I know, we both know, is always 
available for consultation, but is also there for orchestration. And one of the great gifts of uh, the spiritual journey and of the heart transplant and the other medical issues is that I realize that I don't have to try anymore. I don't have to try to figure things out. That uh, spirit provides for me in amazing ways um, everything that I need to do for everything that I'm called to do. And uh, so I see, I see that. And most of my spiritual guidance often comes in that quiet place, usually early morning, like when I'm just waking up, or uh, I might be waking up from a nap. Uh, but you know that you know that kind of gray space, um, and I will hear something, and I will say, "Oh, thank you." And sometimes it's grace, but I I have also have a nickname for the spirit, which is Sophia, and so I will say, "Oh, thank you, Sophia, for that." Um, you know, sometimes when I've been given uh, uh, invitations for various things that I didn't, you know, I'm not out there promoting myself. I know it's Sophia. I, I, you know, it's like, oh, Sophia, okay. Is that what you want me to do next? <laughs> and we have a laugh. Uh, but I think that grace steps in when I'm either pushing it too much and I need to take a break. Like they both have been very clear that I need to take the month of August off because it's been a very busy spring. Um, and to, you know, take some time off to, to uh, read and reflect and do some writing. Um, so I, I am listening. I think that's probably one of the most important things that we can do. So instead of listening to the chatter in our minds, that if we're listening to that quiet place in our minds, what it does is it creates a little space for the spirit to get through. And although our guidance may not come in that moment, it will pop up sometimes later in the day or in in the early morning <laughs> before all of that night. stuff comes up, right? You know, before you watch the news and all all, all the stuff that crowds I, I says I say create clutter <laughs> in the mind. We our minds get too cluttered. We get the guidance. I had one more question come up. It, it, I meant to ask it earlier. What did Howard Thurman say about the heart as a symbol or as an entity? You know, he has a lot to say about it. Uh, I mean, just think about what he chose to name one of his books of meditations, Meditations of the Heart, right, Out from that scripture. And, I, and so there, there is something about the heart that is special to him. And I think he's always asking the question about, so how are you really feeling in your heart? You can say that you believe this, or you can have this attitude, but where is your heart? And he actually said that he was very grateful to see many of the changes, because he died in 1981. So you can imagine from 1899 to 1981, the changes that he saw. So he said he was very grateful for uh, some of the changes in the United States, but it didn't really matter if they changed the laws because if hearts weren't changed, it, it wasn't going to make a difference. So he saw the heart as the core of who you are and that it might be important to examine it to see whether or not it's closed or open, whether it's cold or, or warm. Um, and two, you know, what are you carrying in your heart that is also, uh, that you're also bringing into the world? So he, he also had, uh, and he has some, some meditations uh, between uh, meditations of the heart and um, the inward journey he, he, you know, has one about 
please make more room in my heart. Like we have our room in our hearts for all kinds of things. So do we have room in our hearts for more peace? And do we have more room in our hearts for more love? Um, he he uh, really uh, invites us to examine uh, this idea about having an open and closed heart. So he, he, does, he has some specifically about the heart, and of course he alludes to that in several places. And you learned through your, through your, I guess you could call it trauma of open heart surgery, and then a heart transplant, and then at least two major rejection periods with your heart, and then losing your kidneys, and then uh, getting a kidney transplant, and then uh, getting a pacemaker. And a valve replaced on the transplanted heart, yes. Yes, a valve, re yeah, another open heart surgery. Um, you learned a lot about hearts, and... I hear from your writing, and I am curious if you want to say more, is that um, it seems like what you learn is the heart is this, um, it carries everything that we hold in our mind, but then it's also this channel for a, a deeper spiritual identity that's waiting for us. Yeah, some people would say that embedded in the heart is the spirit, uh, which I think we would have more access to if we were to examine what we're carrying in our heart that's weighing it down. You know, Heavy Harvey would say there are real, you know, emotions that are very heavy, like disappointment and depression kinds of things. And then there are emotions that are very noisy, like anger and agitation and, and anxiety. And so they kind of block the spirit, or at least our, our, our ability to hear you know, what the spirit is trying to communicate through to us through the heart or, you know, just from within side. So perhaps maybe we need to look at those things and see what we can eliminate or dump. So there's more space in the heart, uh, space for the heart, as my heart say, to sing and dance, right? That's how you feel joy. Uh, but... You know, also, I think a lot of people are very much uh, uh, either bogged down or um, wounded or, you know, uh, something that's happened that's uh, uh, created a, a closed heart or um, an angry heart or a depressed heart. And so they're all blocks to the peace and joy, which is our birthright. I think that's what God gave us as we, you know, came into this world. We had those two things. And, you know, over time and through circumstances, sometimes they get covered up. Is there anything else that you f really feel in your heart? <laughs> Excuse me, sorry. <laughs> that you would like to say that didn't get mentioned? Well, I know we talked a little bit about spiritual identity and whether or not it was just about me or something greater. Yeah. And I think it's important for people to know that we're all connected to one source. And, uh, and I think once we internalize this idea that if you need something, you go to the source, right? Um, you don't have to try to manipulate somebody into doing something you want or getting somebody to give you something that if you go to the source, again, you will be provided with whatever it is that you need. And so as you begin to work on your spiritual identity, it leads you to an awareness of your connection to everybody else. And it leads you to community because we're all part of uh, this creation. So hopeful. I, I, I just think that cultivating the spiritual identity pulls you out of your ego. And all of this, you know, I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And, and, and leads you to a place of where you understand that you're part of a much greater creation. And that what you do is important 
to other people that, you know, your decision to wear a mask or not wear a mask, right? Just that. Um, because you're connected. I mean, that is that not what the pandemic is trying to show us? That, that there's this interconnection of all of these spiritual beings around the world. Um, and when there, as, King, as Martin Luther King Jr. would say, when there's injustice in one place, there's injustice everywhere. So, so you know, all of these, these uh, um, situations and uh, the places where we find ourselves now, I think, are coming with the same message, which is that you're a part of something much bigger and uh, I think it would help everybody else, and especially you, <laughs> if you would begin to work on and cultivate your spiritual identity. That's lovely. This has been part one of the three-part series. Please join us for part two of this series as we explore with Professor Brown how discovering an inner life helps us with resiliency.